0: Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersole, and I am delighted to be joined by the poet Paul Killebrew. Paul Killebrew was born and raised in Tennessee. He is the author of two full-length collections, Ethical Consciousness and Flowers, both published by Canarian Books. His chapbook, Forget Rita, was published by the Poetry Society of America, and Ugly Duckling Press published another, Inspector vs. Evader. From 2008 to 2012, he served as a staff attorney at Innocence Project New Orleans, and he currently resides in Maryland with his wife and son. John Ashbury, said of Killabrew, "Killabrew plunges us into a world we inhabit but seldom notice, forcing its horror on us but also reminding us why we go on coping with it, why we're in it for the long haul, wherever the carpool takes us. Paul Killebruth, welcome to uh, New Books and Poetry.
1: Thank you. Thank you, John, and and welcome to you to this phone call. All right.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, Before we jump into um, ethical consciousness, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in uh, in Tennessee?
1: Sure. Um, Nashville is where I grew up, and Nashville is a really beautiful town. Uh, it's very green and pretty and it's an easy place to live. Uh I lived there after law school for a year and thought it was um just fantastic. I mean, it's a place that is uh you have to drive a lot, but beyond that, um people are nice. It's pretty slow and quiet. Mm-hmm. Um but the particular uh area that i grew up in the school i went to and all that was a little bit bizarre um i uh i went to school from first grade through 12th grade at this small private school Mm -hmm. and um when i my graduating class when i was in 12th grade was 48 people um that school and, and half of us had been there since first grade wow um and that, that school was started in 1975 or thereabouts. And the importance of that year is that um, in 1970, there were maybe like four or five private schools in Nashville. And by 1980, there were around 50. I think I have those numbers roughly right. Mm-hmm. And the intervening event was busing. So the local federal courts were enforcing Brown versus Board of Education and making the Nashville public schools integrate through busing. And so all these private schools popped up, and mine was one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, those schools had, like, various ways in which they expressed the kind of racial uh, backdrop for what was happening. And mine was particularly aggressive about it. Really? Um, Yes. So um, when I was in elementary school there, this was still happening, but the headmaster would dress up as Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the... (laughs) Confederate general who founded the Ku Klux Klan.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: um, And and ride out onto the um, football field during football games. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the school mascot was the Rebels. The school flag was the Confederate battle flag. Um, And uh, and this is something I've told people a million times because I think it's just so insane. Um, (laughs) And so to the five people I know who are also going to listen to this, I'm sorry that you're hearing it again. But when I was in second grade, there were just there were only like a, a couple of African American kids in the elementary school, and, yeah. um, and one was in my grade, and uh, and that year there was a homecoming rally every year, like a big parade during the school day where the seniors would decorate their cars and drive the entire campus. Yeah, um, and uh, one of the seniors in decorating the car had taken a cabbage patch doll, like a, a black cabbage patch doll, and tied a noose around its neck. And tied it to his bumper. Um, and uh, <laughs> these kids in my elementary school went home and told their parents, and and that was their last day at that school. Oh my God. Um, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it's terrifying.
0: That um, is horrifying.
1: Jeez. Um, so, and as I was like going through school, I was, you know, pretty unaware of uh, the implications of any of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still remember there was a huge um, mural of nathan bedford forest on the school of my on the wall of my uh elementary school gymnasium like it was just up there on the wall you know holding the big uh, confederate battle flag and um and then like over time it became clearer and clearer that that was a really screwed up school and very weird uh way of dealing with um the changes that were going on in the south and uh And I I think it was only like probably to be totally truthful, high school that I was I fully realized that this was something worthy and meriting rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and so you know by that point I had a much more like kind of distance relationship from it. And in a weird way, it's very much gotten me where I'm where I am now. (laughs) Um, But not in a happy happy way. Um, But like I remember in high school going over to a friend of mine's house and uh, her dad was a big civil war buff and he like went to, I don't think he participated in reenactments, but he would like go and view them. I think I think yeah. that's more or less how it broke down. And I was looking at their bookshelf and I saw like there was a book on the shelf by her dad. And I hadn't thought, I didn't know that he was a writer. And so I pulled it down and the title is a hardback book, pretty thick the title of it was Negro Yachtsman I Have Known. Wow. Um, and so that was another strange. So I start, I open it up and flip through it. A, a book of blank pages.
0: You're so it's
1: me. like No, so it's like this joke book that he. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> that is so
0: incredible.
1: It was totally. Uh, yeah. And it, again, like it's the kind of thing where even at the time that, I was shocked by that. But um I think it has really taken some distance and time away and getting to know people who live their lives other ways to yeah. <laughs> to kind of be more fully um scandalized by that.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's really interesting too to like meet individuals and be in that kind of culture where it totally just kind of embodies their reflexive thinking and it's just kind of like to challenge it, they would those individuals would look at you strangely like what are you talking about like this is uh, this is entirely the matrix of reality for these individuals, and I grew up in Florida, and while that's a very transient, diverse state, uh, it's definitely got its pockets of like that same kind of thinking where the like the jokes, the comments, the general culture is uh, uh, just kind of embodies that sort of uh I mean I guess there's no other word for it hatred right. um. And that that hatred is really born out of some fragility, and it's interesting that you were kind of, as a child, your childhood was
1: steeped in it. And oh, thoroughly. And I mean, you know, and I I will say like, if it's if it's sort of given me any skills, um, one of them is to recognize, I think, um, the different flavors of racism out there, and mm-hmm. um, and I think you know. One of the things you're just saying made me like the idea of confronting people in that environment about about their racism. Mm -hmm. Um, In my experience, because in high school, you know, that's that's, you know, I'm not I'm not saying I was heroic about it, but I got in those conversations. And, you know, that was a that was something that came up a lot. And part of that was that my by the time I was in like 10th or 11th grade, they were starting to try to pull away from as an institution some of those symbols. So yeah. the Confederate battle flag was was uh, prohibited at football games, and mm-hmm. um, they changed the name from the rebels to something else. And, right. Um, and we changed the name of the school paper, and and you know things like that were, were happening. But there was a tremendous amount of anger about it um, mm-hmm. among some quarters. And and I, you know, one of the things that kind of occurred to me during all of that is that it's not. <laughs> Sadly, a lot of this stuff isn't born of ignorance. It's not like this kind of attitude that comes about because um, right. they're unaware that this is going to be offensive or problematic for other people or hurtful. Yes. It's all because it's hurtful and because it's problematic. It's an assertion of power and, yeah. and dominance, and um, and that is, for a lot of folks, that is the important message.
0: yes. Um, no, I think you're precisely right that it's not because they haven't been, exp- you know, they're like cavemen and cavemen, right. you know. It's really that it is this tremendous reaction. It almost is like a way for them to carve out with a chisel of hatred some autonomy from some sort of perception of being encroached upon by the outside world. Um, and then it just expresses itself in this awful way. I was looking through... um This year, I joined Facebook for the first time, and that caused a deluge from my past to come from Florida. And so some of the names that were coming up across Facebook had me grab my yearbook, you know, to go Mm -hmm. kind of cross-reference. And lo and behold, I was looking through one, and there was a picture of a guy, this kid, in his bedroom and the Confederate flag gloriously hanging on his wall. And that was in our yearbook. You know, and I just thought, oh my god you know like that would be unheard of like that would be like never seen now right so it's interesting that uh you know so growing up around that and it's weird because i think the flip side uh the other side of that coin of growing up in the south is that there is a tremendous amount of beauty there you know and uh Mm -hmm. it's such a strange strange tension so did you did you eventually go from
1: tennessee to new orleans
0: um yeah i I, uh, What'd you do something? when you left New Orleans? I mean, when um, you left Tennessee?
1: So I went uh, to University of Georgia for college, mm-hmm. um, which was—I don't know if you've ever been to Athens, Georgia, but um, I have. It, yes, it's such a great place, oh, and yeah. um, I got there almost entirely by accident. I—I um, I was going to go to college at the University of Missouri, and I went to orientation i mean that's how much i was going to go to college there i went to college orientation exactly and um and when i got i'd never been to the midwest before and uh and so once i got there i looked around and i was kind of like you know i just got out of this environment that was like overwhelmingly (laughs) a monoculture yeah and extremely white and um and it and i you know university of missouri is i'm sure a, a totally wonderful place but as i looked around i was like this doesn't seem like the kind of change that I was looking for. Um, I really wanted to go to a state school because I wanted to be somewhere um, large, and, like, I wanted to be one among many. Yeah. Um, And uh, after having graduated with 48 people, you know, I was really, (laughs) who I'd known forever, um, I I was really ready for anonymity. And um, So anyway, my brother went to the University of Georgia, and he's older than me, and I'd gone to visit a couple times, and I had applied there and gotten in there, but I hadn't really taken it that seriously. (laughs) <laughs> but I actually I was in Columbia, Missouri and I decided this was something where I was going to go to school and so I called University of Georgia and this is like 3 weeks before it's supposed to start and I said, "Hey, I got in, can I still go there? Are there yeah. any orientation spots left?" And they said, "Basically, if you get in, you can just show up." Oh uh, yeah. Which I thought was bizarre. It's like that's how m- much of a complete, you know, gigantic place it was. So, um <laughs> So anyway, that's what I did, and uh, and that was a really incredible. I just I have a lot of. Um, I grew up a lot in in Athens, and yeah. uh, it was a really perfect place for me to be. And um, so I'm very thankful that that happened. And I was really glad to stay in the south uh, and experience a kind of different side of it. Um, and then after that, after college, I in my complete um, stupidity just decided like i'm just gonna move to new york and um (laughs) and find work yeah Um, and so i did i moved to new york in um august 17th 2001 yeah uh without a job and uh my brother had moved there already and had an apartment in brooklyn Mm -hmm. um he was my brother was working at an independent film studio that wasn't paying him, which I think is a common thing in New York. Yeah. Um, they just had an account at the deli on the corner. <laughs> and so he was getting all of his meals and beer and cigarettes and everything at that deli. <laughs> yeah. and, and he had an apartment in Brooklyn, but he was sleeping on a futon in the film studio. Yeah. Um, and he had these two models. It was a couple, Dan and <laughs> Sophie living in the apartment in Brooklyn, and I moved in with Dan and Sophie. Nice. <laughs> uh, it was a one-bedroom apartment um, where they were on a fold-out couch in the living room, and I was in the tiny bedroom right next to them, probably a 500, and, 500 to 600-square-foot apartment. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so I was there, and I was applying for jobs and, you know, not having a ton of luck. And then 9-11 happened. Oh, my God. Um, and then nobody was, like, returning calls or doing interviews or anything. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I got a job waiting tables at a um, Thai restaurant right across the street, which was awesome, because uh, I would work from about 4 to 10. Okay. And then at the end of the shift... Everyone, the cooks would make these three big bowls of food, like delicious Thai food, and we'd all sit down and eat together.
0: That's great. Um,
1: And then you could take leftovers home. Um, So I was eating Thai food for basically every meal of the day (laughs) um, and living off tips. They didn't pay me any wage. It was just cash-only tips. Yeah. Uh, um, (laughs) And it was sort of beautiful. And then I finally got a job at a social service agency as a grant writer Mm -hmm. um, and did that for a few years. And then I went to law school in New York. Um, and then after law school, I worked in Nashville for a judge for a year Mm -hmm. and then came down to New Orleans.
0: Let me ask you real quick, what, mm -hmm, it seems like you have these parallel interests with, uh, you know, studying law and practicing law. And then of course your, uh, poetry, uh, when did each of those find you, you know, when did each of those interests kind of start crystallizing in you and, and what has been that, uh, relationship between both of them?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, so, time-wise, I remember, uh, actually, the guy who had the book, Negro Yachtsman, I have known, um, my friend's dad, he once said, jokingly, that I was going to go to law school. Like, he just kind of said that. And that was the first time that it sort of entered my consciousness, I think. That's because, so
0: interesting, yeah. Uh,
1: like, I, uh, my parents aren't lawyers, and um, I, I guess I have a great-grandfather who is a judge. Um but like that, there's not like a lot of legal people in my in my like aunts and uncles, right? And grandparents, none of them were lawyers, so um, I didn't really know what a law degree entailed or what it would mean or what kind of life that would uh, bring about. So it wasn't something I really thought about, and um, and then in college, I was I think probably even further away from any sort of conception of doing that. Um, but I did want to be a writer probably from high school or so when I started reading a lot,
0: um,
1: you know, and thought like, you know, that would be a cool thing to do. But again, like, you know, um, would try to write poems or stories or things like that. And they were, and I, I, and would recognize very quickly that they were really bad and, um, (laughs) thought that I didn't, you know, like it was something I was interested in, but, um, and then in college I wrote for a little, um, there's like a a magazine called flagpole magazine in Mm -hmm. in Athens it's sort of like uh, a very small version of the village voice for a much smaller town um and that's like the alternative news weekly and so my friend Travis Nichols uh who's a novelist now um and a poet he was writing for them and he got me a gig sort of doing stuff so I did that during college and that was sort of like you know a growing experience for me as a writer um because and basically because i would write something turn it in it would get edited and then get published and then the difference in how i felt about it from when i turned it in to when i saw it in print yes um uh was awful i mean it was just like this massive difference (laughs) like once i saw it in print i realized like oh my god Like, this is awful. Really, really not good. I need to work on this a lot. Right. Um, And uh, so that was, you know, I think it helped me in a way to just kind of, you know, grow up a little bit about writing. Um, But I still, like, poetry was completely out of my consciousness until my last semester of college. Yeah. Travis had taken a poetry workshop with Brian Henry, Mm -hmm. um, who was teaching at UGA at the time. And um, he... He took that our first semester, uh, and he said, you should take it next semester. He's teaching another workshop. And so I said I would. There's another poet, Laura Solomon, who was taking that same workshop, and uh, Monica Fambro. Um, and there were other people who are also now, uh, like, poets that people have heard of in that workshop. So there's probably six of us or so that have gone on to do more poetry things and publish books and stuff. So, um, so it was a good crowd. And uh, and so Brian was, um, it was the hardest class I took that semester. Um, Brian had us read a contemporary book of poetry each week and write a 500-word paper on it and bring in a poem. So hmm. every week there was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and our first five books were John Ashbery's first five books. <laughs> so um, it, it was, re- and again, like I had never read a book right. of poetry all the way through. Um, I wonder if that, that benefited point. you somehow in
0: a way. Oh, know. hugely.
1: I mean, John Ashbery completely blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time I read Ted Bear again. That was the first time I read Alice Notley. Uh, I mean, just the list of people that i had never had any contact before and then suddenly did. Um, it was uh, to compress all of that into one semester as, for a 22-year-old. I mean, it was just psychedelic and uh, incredible.
0: Yeah, so when you're walking out of there, out of that class, kind of freaked out and, and loving it, where is your thought about law school? Is it even anywhere around your head yet?
1: No, no. I'm, I went to a uh, uh, um, the English department at UGA and what must have felt like this very tragic uh, but necessary thing um, would have career advising that was, like, specific for English majors. I mean, um, that's
0: a dubious task.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I mean, maybe it was just, like, all a big joke or something, like that they, they just <laughs> wanted to see what people would do or what ideas English majors had about how to make money. Um, oh, so I went yeah. to that, and, uh, and I came out of it so depressed because the guy, he was, like, have you considered technical writing? <laughs>
0: it's like, let's stick a revolver uh, in my mouth right yeah, now. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's just like, I really, and what's hilarious is that that's exactly what I ended up doing. It became a grant writer, exactly. essentially a technical writer. So, yeah. um, but I remember just thinking like, that is the most unromantic, like <laughs> awful thing um, that one can imagine. So anyway, like I really had no idea what I was gonna do. And um, I, I, I had I'd done an internship during between my junior and senior years of college in New York, um, at this place called West Harlem Environmental Action, okay. uh, which is like, um, uh, they do like sort of the, the nexus of the environmental movement and the civil rights movement. Um, so basically the idea that uh, oppressed communities. One of the ways in which they can be oppressed is through environmental damage. No doubt. Um, and, uh, and East, uh, in West Harlem, one of the big issues there, this is just crazy, and, um, so I'm just gonna talk about it for a minute. Um, <laughs> the, there's all these different sewage treatment plants in Manhattan. As you can imagine, there would have to be a lot of them. Um, I think at the time there were 11. Yeah. And, uh, nine of them, were above 125th Street. Oh man. Um and so there was a bunch in West Harlem. And uh the eleventh one uh was being built, I want to say during the nineties, and it got proposed originally for um to be on the Hudson River um sort of in around the Upper West Side. The community around the Upper West Side absolutely freaked out. The community boards freaked out. Um, city council people freaked out. Uh, so it didn't get built there. Yeah. And then, without telling anyone, they just started building it at 135th. Oh, gosh. On the Hudson. Um, so then the community groups up there started freaking out and fighting it. And, um, and West Harlem Environmental Action, one of the first things that <clears throat> I think that they were involved in was they did a, uh, a civil disobedience action where they um blocked the west side highway after the um the thing had been built because when it was being built the people are building it kept on saying no no it's not going to stink i know it's a sewage treatment facility but we've got all this special new technology it's not going to stink and when they built it it stank oh so um they, they they stopped all traffic they walked out in the traffic on the west side highway blocked all traffic so that everyone would get out of their cars and have to like smell Exactly. Um, so anyway, uh, one of the crazy things is they have the, the, the sewage treatment plant runs on diesel, and um, they have these huge smokestacks that go up out of it, and the smokestacks blow like chug out diesel fumes, diesel smoke, and it blows directly across uh, over Manhattan into uh, public housing high-rises. Oh, my And you gosh. can see a line. Across the level where the smoke hits on the public housing high-rises, yeah. where it's black, just with like, the smoke hitting it.
0: It's like zero ambiguity of what's going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And so the asthma rates are out of control in West yeah. Harlem. and yeah. So anyway, um, all that to say, I had this sense that you could a person could move to New York and work at a nonprofit and make a life for themselves, and it could be interesting. Yeah. So after college, that was sort of my thought, was to go do that. And um, and I ended up as a grant writer. And while I was there, I thought uh, one of my really um, a professor who was really important to me in college when I, I was like a political science and English double major. And mm-hmm. um, one of my political science professors <clears throat> had been a social worker. And um, and she and she just seemed to have like very interesting ideas about things and also had had an interesting life. And so I had this idea that I could be a social worker. And so when I was working at the social service agency as a grant writer, I let, like I got them to let me work in a couple of programs, yeah. um, to get a sense of, you know, how, what that would be like. And I talked to a bunch of social workers there, all of which like the, the end result of which was like, I realized that I could not be a social worker, that it would be a very hard job to have. And, yeah. um, like, you know, God bless the people who do it, but um, but I think I realized that I would get ground into the ground by that. So then, you know, I think around then was when I was like, well, maybe law school makes more sense. Yeah. So that talks. Uh
0: huh. I was just gonna say, was it? And well, actually, I want to back up for a second. You know, from everything you've talked about, you seem extremely sensitive to the injustices that happen to other people. While there's other people in this world that you know, we, you know, just don't even like, you know, those things don't come on our radar, but you seem extremely socially conscious. Do you attribute that to like personal experience or just like kind of innate disposition? Because there's millions of poets that uh, don't think about these things whatsoever, but it seems to be ingrained in your, your identity. And then it kind of, and then it seems to inform your work to some degree as well. So can you talk about that for a second?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I just preface this by saying, like, that's a really generous question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're making a lot of very generous assumptions about me, so thank mm. you. <laughs> <laughs> I generously assume a lot. <laughs> um, so uh, let me think about this. I guess, um, well, okay, my grandparents were, um, were, on my mom's side, were missionaries in Japan. And, um, and they get, they moved there in like 1948. Um, so like, you know, my grandfather was in World War II. He never saw real combat. But, um, after that, you know, they both felt called to, to serve. And, uh, and at the time they grew up in rural Arkansas. And so to me, it's this astonishing thing. We're like, they're from these little tiny towns in Arkansas. They had gone to the little tiny Bible college in Arkansas and they decided to dedicate their lives to service. And at that time, what that meant was being a missionary. And um, that was the road that was open to them. Um, They were ready to go to Africa. That's where they thought that they would go. And then general MacArthur called upon missionaries to be sent to Japan um, in the sort of, you know, rebuilding Japan phase. Uh, And so my grandparents, responded to the call along with like a thousand other missionaries. Hmm. Um, And, uh, and they went there and they built churches and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and I guess the meaning that that's had for me in life has been um, that uh, service is an important and valuable uh, and uh, valid way to live life. Um, And, I think also in college I went through um, <clears throat> probably the worst depression that I've had, and it never got anywhere close to what many people have experienced. But um, one of the things that I that uh, the one of the meanings that I kind of took away from from that was that <clears throat> I didn't like being in school. I didn't like being in college, partly because it was um, very much focused on the self. And yeah. focused on um, sort of like I felt like I was like spending all of my time, uh, like all the work I was doing, uh, all of the um, studying I was doing. It was really self enrichment.
0: Yeah, it was and like I'm thinking about Paul 24
1: 7. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's an important thing. I mean, that's a hugely important part of life, and I'm not trying to discount it, but yeah. I found it also really dispiriting. Yeah. Um, because I, I uh, am not, I don't have that much to. To, I'm not that interesting, and like my problems are not that fascinating, and um, and there's no reason that my life should take up that much space in the sort of mental universe. Um, yeah. I'm fine, you know, like I will be <laughs> fine, yeah. and like so. Uh, well, it's kind of like, like a disposition of, of like humility, and then.
0: And also, it just reminds me of the fact that, like, college is interesting in that way. It, it asks you to burrow into the self in many ways. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very unhealthy thing when a lot of times acts of self-forgetting can be very healthy. Right. And then it made me think about your grandparents and their missionary work. Uh, you know, we associate, uh, people's faith in the South with kind of that personal revelation style, uh, uh kind of faith. And it's interesting that there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of social energies to their faith. Did you grow up in a household of, uh, of faith? Were your parents very religious at all?
1: My my mom more than my dad when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and, uh, And you know, just to be totally all cards on the table. My grandparents were Southern Baptists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing I'll say about their the era that, in which they were Southern Baptists is, you know, Billy Graham had been, I think, a Southern Baptist kind of person. And, you know, Billy Graham... And Martin Luther King collaborated, like on. It was a very different world. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the way that social justice was thought of among Baptists used to be way different. Um, So my my grandparents are more in the sort of Jimmy Carter, Billy Graham, uh, strain of 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 Baptists. But um, so my yeah my mom took us to church pretty regularly uh and uh we went we switched churches a lot so I didn't grow up like in a church yeah um but it was definitely a huge and the school I went to was a religious school
0: yeah.
1: uh, non-denominational christian school um so that was you know an ever-present feature um and i had like i think i was probably most uh crazy about that stuff when i was like 19 my first year of college i was sort of like all in yeah, um, and in a way that um, you know was a growth experience. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I think uh, I think having an engagement. I man, when you were talking, it sounded just like I went to Baptist churches in Florida, and my family. is I don't know if it was church shopping, but I remember going to like a lot of different types of churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always think it's interesting growing up and the way uh, the sensibility of a young person encounters kind of this these mysterious and supernatural claims or or the literature of say the bible in this case that it it sort of forces one to think whether those truth claims are true whatever it does force one out of themselves to see beyond themselves and uh so you know whether one discards that uh in a philosophy class when they hit college, whatever. But I think there's a sort of, there's a sort of gift given to those who encounter that kind of weird world of faith as a child. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way.
1: I mean, I, I have really mixed feelings about it. Cause I also think like, um, I mean, especially in Baptist churches, it's such a, um, zone of like self-righteousness and, yeah. um, uh, I don't know. There's just so much toxic that's that. There is,
0: is a lot. It's
1: <laughs> going truck, through so all. It's I mean, truckloads of it. But I mean, yeah.
0: I think as an intelligent person like yourself who can, who can kind of tease out all that toxicity and understand that's maybe not a community you want to belong to, uh, right. but that personal engagement's interesting. I think, and and ha- it it for me anyway. It kind of rubs elbows with the artistic impulse or the idea of. Of just the creative impulse, but uh, I want to back up or uh, well, actually move forward to your to your bio. I think we left off in New York City. Mm-hmm. You were uh, you had just worked in that uh, the nonprofit, mm-hmm. and you were just telling us that fascinating story about the water treatment plants. And that's when you decided to go to law school. Um, where did you end up? Le- where did you go after New York?
1: Um, let's see. So I went. I, I really wanted to leave New York for law school. Um, it would have been my very sincere hope that uh, I was going to get in somewhere that was like really good and also elsewhere. Um, but uh, I ended up getting into NYU, which is a fantastic place, and um, it was just the best law school I got into. So yeah, um, that's where I went. And uh, and again, like you know, it was a little bit. It was. <laughs> I never heard anybody before law school. It was like, man, law school is great. Like, nobody ever, like, I just thought this was going to be this miserable, you know, <laughs> awful experience that was strictly, you know, in order to satisfy certain ends. Um, but then the intellectual experience of law school is totally amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I really, I <laughs> really liked law school. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot. I really uh, um, had some just fabulous professors and um really amazing classmates and um so it was a you know kind of a beautiful thing and um the one thing that it did completely solidify was that I wanted to go back to the South. Um that uh there's a lot of folks who come out of a place like NYU has this particular uh commitment to public interest yeah. lawyering. And um so there's a lot of people who come out and work at nonprofits and do sort of do gooder work and um, but uh, there's still a lot of folks who end up doing it in fabulous locations like New York City or San Francisco or places like that that are wonderful places to live. Um, and I thought like, you know, if I, I could go for those kind of jobs, if I didn't, somebody completely wonderful would fill my shoes. Um, because there's a lot of people who want to do that. In the South, my sense was that that may not Be true. (laughs) um, Not that there's like not there's wonderful and incredible people working in the South, but um, it's uh, there's not a ton of people who come from you know who want to spend their lives engage in it. You know, so anyway, I um, there's this thing like after you go to law school, where you can apply to work for a a judge for Mm -hmm. a year as a clerkship, and um, and so I decided to do that. And ended up getting a clerkship in uh, Nashville, so it was nice because I could be at home yeah um, and you know think about what it would be like to live at home and live you know near my folks and all that stuff. Um, I ultimately decided not to do that uh, partly because I couldn't I don't know I, I couldn't figure out where I was going to work in Nashville um, but actually family wise it turned out to be really nice um, yeah. My uh, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer when I was there. Oh my god! um, Which was awful, but it was like I was really thankful to be around. Yeah, no Um, doubt. And um, so, and she's fine now and and remission and everything. Oh good. But but anyway, it was like you know a sort of a weird year. And then after that, uh, I ended up. You know, Getting a job with the Innocence Project. I had worked there during law school between my first and second year. <clears throat> and um, that was pre Katrina. I, I worked there in the summer of 2005, so mm-hmm. I left like two weeks before Katrina. Wow. Um, and after that summer, I was, you know, I, I, the summer itself was just amazing because the work is amazing. Um, and it's a small nonprofit, so interns end up being able to do quite a bit um and uh the people who work there are just incredible people uh so i came away from it just loving it and then after katrina i tried to go down a few times just for various things that were going on and started to feel a lot of like okay if there's ever a time to want to be in a city and be trying to do do gooder work and yeah uh, you know it really just felt i felt very pulled towards it um And so that's I was there for four and a half years.
0: Yeah. I'm looking at the years you published your uh, chapbook, Forget Rita, was 2003. So this Mm -hmm. whole time where you're kind of like, you're kind of figuring out your professional life, you're also clearly writing poetry, keeping that up, keeping connected uh, to the community of poets, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you end up getting to a relationship after you did the chapbooks, a relationship with, uh, books.
1: Um, so like, (laughs) I I remember like talking to a bunch of, I think it was undergrads or maybe MFA students at some point about, you know, how to get published and that sort of stuff. And I think I, uh, am the worst possible advice giver in this regard. (laughs) Um, and it's because I just completely lucked out uh, and it's not like a, it's not like a path that is, is followable. Um, yeah. I, uh, so I, I, yeah, I, like, I got a he- like very lucky with that, with the first chapbook and, um, and that was sort of like a great way to, um, it's like a, it gave great entry into like getting poems published in journals and things like that. And that was yeah. like massively lucky. And, uh, after that, like I, you know, I think when I was in my mid to late twenties, I was a little more active about sending work out to journals and, you know, trying to be visible and that sort of stuff during law school that all that pretty much stopped, um, because I just didn't have time. I continued to write and, uh, you know, I did a chapbook while I was in law school, but, um, it was a much slower pace, but then after law school, while I was clerking, I had sort of like a much easier schedule than when I was in law school. So I decided to like spend some time trying to put together all my poems into a manuscript, which I did. And, uh, it was like, a I decided I made this like decision, like I'm just going to anything that isn't like, you know, completely all the way there that I don't absolutely love. I'm not putting in and I'm going to see what I have left. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had like 40 pages. Yeah. So from that point, from about like 10 years worth of writing. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt like, okay, this is a good, this is a solid 40 pages. And um, and I sent it to the fence contest. Mm-hmm. That was it. Um, around that time, Anselm Berrigan had become the poetry editor at the Brooklyn Rail. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he asked me if I had anything that I wanted to do, like that, you know, that he could look at. And so I just sent him the manuscript. Yeah. He picked out a couple of poems and published those. And then somebody was in Brooklyn, saw them there, took the Brooklyn Rail and gave it to Nick Twimlow.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, in Chicago. And Nick read them and said, oh, wow, OK. And he had known, I guess, something before. <clears throat> but then he emailed me and just said, do you have, you know, we're starting a press. Do you have any a manuscript that you would let us consider. Right. And I said, yes, absolutely. So, <laughs> um, cause I knew the canary and, you know, like it was really solid stuff. And definitely, um, so I sent it to him and, uh, then like, you know, I don't know, three weeks, a month later he called up and he said, we'd like to publish it. And I said I don't even have to think about it of course
0: oh my uh, gosh
1: was that? Well,
0: that must have been a great moment huh
1: it was um, I was driving and uh, and uh, answered the call while I was driving because I'm yeah. responsible <laughs> and um, but I pulled into a, a Kroger parking lot and um, and we just talked on the phone for probably about 45 minutes um, and yeah that was unbelievable and like I called I emailed fence that night and I said like I was like <laughs> Take me out of the running. yeah um, this, I, I had no idea if I was even in it but you know
0: um, <laughs> and and that, and that manuscript was flowers right yes And, yes. and when we uh, when we look forward to uh, ethical consciousness, I want to ask you, when you look back at the poems of flowers that were kind of written over that long period of time, mm-hmm. poems you like literally have been living with forever. Mm-hmm. you know, what was the experience of publishing it in that way? And then how did you go into the manuscript for Ethical Consciousness? Was it just a totally different vibe? And how do you think your priorities as a as a poet changed from the flowers to Ethical Consciousness?
1: Well, I mean, so putting together flowers, it took almost zero editing, because, like, I, these are poems that I've had for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sort of knew which ones and I knew what order and, you know, like a lot of the stuff was really kind of, um, pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. That Uh,
0: manuscript sounded like it really knew itself.
1: I I mean, I, I had that benefit of having taken a long time and, um, you know, feeling like distance enough from the poems that it was somebody else who'd written them. I, you know, like, and, and in some ways it was more just like a relief. I think a lot of people feel that way about the first book experience where it's like this, it's a relief that ultimately feels extremely empty um, because, like, all, I mean, I can't remember which Frank O'Hara poem it is, but he talks about, like, the feeling of being several floors up in the dead of night knowing that you've done it. (laughs) Um, And that's all that writing poems kind of is. Yeah, Um, And, uh, or I I guess he's talking about working on editing a book. And that's sort of the way it felt like, okay, well, I'd done it. Um, and, you know, there we are. And,
0: uh... It must free you up to go forward now. It's like, oh, I could just... That, like, not that you could just die happy at that moment, but you could at least move forward without a sense of urgency of getting published or whether anybody's going to like these, or... So how did ethical consciousness kind of start coming together?
1: So then, um, I had this idea when because all the poems and Flowers, like, generally had been in place for a while, that um, I wanted to, by the time Flowers came out, because it was, like, a year from knowing that they were going to do it to when it came out, or something, maybe even longer, I really wanted to be, like, well on my way to the next one. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, a, it's a completely stupid mentality, because there's no schedule, um, <laughs> and there's not a contest or anything. But, uh-huh. um I just had this idea like, okay, I want like I want uh I wanna keep writing and keep trying and keep, you know, at all of this. So um, I'll just, you know, see if I can get another manuscript together. And I um, and so I was writing like I don't know, semi frequently and then um, but it was a lot more uh Well, there's a lot of poems in the book were written in one very specific way um, with this um, typewriter that I had found, I think, in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. that had like a sort of um, really basic word processor on it where you could see like two lines of text. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But you can only see like half of each, like of a full uh, page line.
0: Yeah, it's got that like weird miniature, tiny little screen.
1: A, light, a little tiny screen. Yeah. So all I really need is half of a line, anyway. So I would, um, and and then basically the point is you can write and edit on that little tiny screen, and then when you're done, you can tell it to print it, and it'll right. type it all up for yes. you. Yes. Like a player piano, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So using that little screen, the the healthy thing for me was that um, I was really focused on the present. Of each line, and that um, what became really important to me was uh, creating a dynamic change from one line to the next uh, where I wouldn't be thinking about the overall arc of the poem. Right. Um, And I guess it's similar to like therapy. Um where you know you think of your life in terms of certain narratives or whatever yeah. um, and that the present seems to fit within those narratives uh, in a way that can become very confining or whatever. And that's sort of what um, what I sensed for me was becoming a problem with with poems uh, that you know following the track of something um, ended up actually being this very limiting, uh, way to think about uh, yeah. the the about what a poem is or can be or whatever. So for whatever reason, it felt very freeing to not allow myself that um, that knowledge, I guess.
0: Yeah. Now the poems. I mean, it makes well now there's a practical sense to the line length that we see in the book, uh, which is kind of stunning to encounter. And I always imagine them by virtue of the. Just almost how they visually look, that they are designed specifically to, to find their ways into very tight crevices of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that they actually, you find that liberated in a way. It's just finding that liberation in the constraint, but the, I almost sense that the poems are able, by virtue of what you just said, you know, able to find, able to find various zones of consciousness mm-hmm. that, Otherwise, I think what you're saying couldn't be
1: accessed. That was the way when I was when I was writing them. That's the that's what I felt like was um, making them work was that. Um, there's I think like when I was in high school, I read this Robert Frost quote uh, and I'm not like a great appreciator of Robert Frost. Mm-hmm. But um, at the time, I guess I was more. And but he said something about like, you know, a poem should have a surprise. Yeah. And um and and, you know there was this great feeling as I was doing poems that um, and it's sort of what happens when you do uh, formal constraints, Mm -hmm. you know, formal constraints often uh, are exciting as a, for the writing process, because um, when you paint yourself into that corner, you have to come up with something that you wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and so in a way it was like that kind of constraint uh, in a, Not at the level of form so much as at the level of, um, like mental process.
0: Yeah. Let's jump into the book actually and read the, uh, the very first, uh, poem, which is, uh, titled Diseaseless Cure. Um, do you want to say anything about the poem before you read it? Um, that's a good thought. Why did you, uh, let's just,
1: I'll I'll ask you a question. Why
0: did you, was it like a no brainer to make this the first poem or would it to just kind no. of mechanically end up that way?
1: I had actually, um, when I sent the book to, uh, the Canarium editors the first time I had put, I had it done in a completely different order. I had put, um, the long poem ethical consciousness first. Yeah. I have this idea. I have this idea, um, that, uh, cause I, I, write like a lot, not a lot, but like I have long poems, like both books have had long poems and like, both book, chapbooks were long poems, and, um, I have this idea that, like, you should start a book with a long poem, and it's not something you see that often, but, it's um, true. uh, it's a, it's maybe, like, not a mature impulse on my part, um, because it's sort of like, you know, okay, you want to do this, do this then. Like, if you're going to read it, just here you go. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, uh, I think one of the, but the reason, one of the reasons I like that, they like the idea anyway is that, The great thing about a long poem, um, or when, when they're good, like a, a James Schuyler long poem, for example, um, you really are walking around in his mind for a while. Yeah. And, um, and you get a very, uh, thorough sense of how that guy's mind operates. Um, you start to appreciate, uh, the little, the smaller things that he's doing, um, the, the variations in voice become a little bit more pronounced mm-hmm. uh, because you're not that he's droning or anything, but just that you can really see it sort of tap into stuff and you get this. Um, I mean, maybe it's like the difference between uh, typical sitcoms and the sort of long form TV shows that are na- happening now. Like, you know, it's just the developments happen so much slower yeah. and they feel uh, kind of Crazier because of that. Um, so anyway, I had this idea: we'll start with the long with a long poem and we'll end with a long poem, um, and you know, put everything else kind of in between. And uh, Josh Edwards was—he's um, a brilliant editor and a brilliant guy. And one of the things that he said is that um, for him, it would make more sense to think about um, the personal speaker. Uh, going from I to you over mm-hmm. the, of the book, and, um, and that, you know, these, he wanted to put poems in the beginning that are more from, uh, an I. Yeah. And, uh, and then sort of let that, uh, that, that would be kind of an invitation. And then, you know, uh, throughout the book, it can become more distance. And so, um, I read, he suggested an order. I read through the book in that order, and it made complete sense. So, This poem, in that line of thought, I thought was the perfect... I mean, to me, I thought this was the one that makes a lot of sense at the beginning. All right, whenever you're ready. Excellent. Diseaseless Cure. My disease, if I have one, is life in its entirety. The white drapes, the faceted expression, the face of the unerring device, these inscrutable tears collecting like tulips around the copse of vases. I look down at the color of my hands and the color of the floor beneath them, under both are subfloor, studs, insulation, dirt, civil engineering, the perilously close water table, and hell. Above, a gray insecurity in the clouds, is as much as we'll get of the constantly threatened, constantly delayed winter, as much as we're likely to learn about the characters in this chapter, that we meet eyes, smile, and move graciously across the tablecloth into the arms of the falling rain. The cars are freshly dented, the houses bulging with sheetrock and recyclables, the air of vertiginous internet. A line breaks between clouds, and sunlight falls in a stripe, scanning the barcode of side streets between avenues. I stand at the edge of my paperwork, Fully accepting the time I have deliriously wasted in pursuit of a more tactful resistance to the face I have engorged myself upon. But after years of sifting through faulty detonators, I finally located the indolent switch and can move in exasperation to the chorus. Yeah,
0: I can see where Josh would see this as an extremely kind of personal eye (laughs) to Mm -hmm. start off with, Um, especially near um, the end of the poem. I, you know, that of my paperwork, fully accepting the time I've deliriously wasted in pursuit of a more tactful resistance to the face I've engorged myself upon. But after years of sifting through faulty detonators, and this is where the poem to me is just like, whoa, what's going on? (laughs) Faulty detonators. I finally located the indolence switch and can move in exasperation to the course. And I was wondering, you know, I think your compositional method and for a lot of poets is wholly intuitive, you know, like Mm -hmm. for me to like point to a line and go, Hey, can you break that down for us is ridiculous and unfair. But this one in particular does seem to, there's a, a a tangible self-awareness to the speaker. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading it, it seems that the that the speaker had made up some major decision and and I was wondering if you could speak to that because it seems that I finally look after all these faulty detonators, you know, which indicates like one you're searching for one mm-hmm. and they're all coming up short. They're all kind of empty and then and then the switch and the kind of conjoined indolent with switch. Uh, we I associate switch with like something flicking immediately on mm-hmm. where indolent seems to be something that either you don't feel or moves in slow, you know, accretions or like moves slowly. Right. And obviously, and then the exasperation to move to the chorus seems to be to move to some common or, or collective subject. Uh, am I making any sense here about the, uh, yeah. what the eye is up here and how that manifested itself in you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I was thinking about this recently cause like, I I was thinking about this poem and how and and what was happening in my life during the time. Yeah. And um you know, it's really stupid because it's like, oh, of course that's what that's about. Like I didn't even think of it at the time as like, you know, but um so I got married uh really quickly after uh meeting my wife. Uh we got together and 7 months later we're married. Mm-hmm. And um and then We got pregnant, um, how long after that? Like seven months after that, or like maybe, maybe not, maybe five months after that. Right. Um, and, uh, so, and it was, I think, I I think I wrote those at that ending at least, um, after we had gotten pregnant. So, um, well, I mean, it's, uh, when you get married
0: and then also have a child, uh, you are definitely <laughs> relinquishing uh, the primacy of your identity. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, the hope, right? <laughs> and that is definitely an act of self-forgetting. Um, it's sort of like an evacuation of the identity because it's <laughs> definitely not about you anymore. Um, right. But, yeah, I think the poem really kind of captures that. I really felt like there was an... It felt autobiographical, and it's not in the information that was revealed, but in the word choice. And uh, and just the fact that it announces itself as the first poem is, is really good. I was hoping we can move on to uh, another poem. Uh, sure. Uh, which is called On a Finger on uh, actually page 17.
1: All right. Here we go. On a finger. Here we are. No one compared to no one. Hallucinating an agreement, bending under the weight of massive variations from one insight to the next. Can anyone hold onto the flash and the mind of the rage in which this morning is kept? Everyone knew, everyone could hear the constant slamming together of alive and so breathless, so flattened against the wave of recognition in the face of events. Paths crossing along the edge of a pencil, how you strain to see through the cracks between your fingers. It's over, or at least it's dropped to such a low level of activity that it might as well be. You moved closer, and for the first time, I could see the pattern. Certainties form, disband, and cyclically realign under different colors. But each prayer from the angle of blunt attraction has a sender, and every afternoon, it's silhouette.
0: Thanks, Paul. You know, the thing that jumps out to me with this poem is that uh as the lines, how you strain to see through the cracks between your fingers. And I felt like your poems are constantly telescoping down to the, to the small, mm-hmm. to the, to the things we don't look at. And then simultaneously your poems maintain this kind of buoyant ambiguity once we're there. And I don't know whether this is achieved through the use of pronouns or whatnot, but it's really kind of a, it's, it's uh it's a disruptive, a pleasurable disruptive effect. And then with these, these short lines, and it's interesting to hear the hear the short lines because I think I read the book two ways, and it was uh, I was reading I was reading the lines in a very conversational pace, uh, and that's really where your amicable voice really jumps out, and the language you use is extremely personal while simultaneously there's like a almost a gauze between Uh, what's being said in the reader which creates a very like interesting tension um and then i and so then i read the poems at like almost re like just a slowed down speed and i started just wrapping my mouth around every syllable every word and the book became entirely different Mm -hmm. and and i think that's where i think if we think about the short line that's and I know it was a physical constraint you kind of put on yourself with that typewriter, but I think as a collateral benefit, it was that the book can be read multiple ways and that, and that each word is suddenly kind of uh, glowing with intention. Um, and then I thought, and then it made me think of long lines and I was thinking of Whitman and whatnot and mm-hmm. CK Williams and all those cats who, and how strangely vulnerable those seem. How they just kind of unroll themselves across the page like that and how my own disposition that I find that terrifying. I can't mm-hmm. imagine just, it's like unrolling a carpet so every can, everyone can walk on. Um, <laughs> and so I really, uh, I really appreciate the short line because I feel like it, it has a, a central energy to it that is just like crystallizing these little lines. Um, I was hoping to move on to uh, planks and frames if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Lengths and frames. Each letter hung on flat undulations and then dropped one after another onto the empty floor. No one was home, and I didn't know what would happen. I saw a spray of bread across the frosted glass. I pasted on a look. I waited for the hydraulics of enjoyment to level off inside the composition of what happened. The door disintegrates, and then your eyes in narrow shifts of activity in a geometric inclination through the door to the street, flush to the edges of ourselves. We were a total person with a certain tilt. Two streetlights pulsed orange flowers through a dull fog. Sheets of glass stacked up behind my forehead, bending glints from what I saw into pure color and dampening voices to the frontier of understanding. We became a pyramid and then flattened to a square. Down and hungry meaning, enough, never reaching enough. I got up in the morning and rubbed my eyes. The light went up and down on the wall, beautiful on a soundtrack of cars.
0: Oh man, that is awesome. There's a gorgeous moment in here. I wanna, what's nice about, uh, interviewing poets is that I get to read their words back to them and <laughs> freak them out a little and I get to, read their work, but, uh, you know, the voices to the frontier of understanding is really incredible. I read a review of this book and the reviewer really honed in on the automobile and cars. Mm -hmm. Was there any special significance to you? Is that as some sort of symbol that, that you kept latching onto, or is that just something that kind of mysteriously kept visiting the poems?
1: Um, so I like, that's, there's like a few times uh, I feel like this happens for other people. I'm sure it does where uh, this happened during the editing process where somebody like pointed out a word that I'd used <laughs> a bunch. And I was like, I had no idea, like just yes. no clue about it. Um, I ask poets this
0: all the time and they say the same thing. And um, they're just, they shrug their shoulders. <laughs> you know, they're like, sorry.
1: Uh, oh, no, not, like at least the, I want to ask though. The, the possibilities for a lack of self-awareness are astonishing. And, um, <laughs> And so, yeah, that that like I read that too, and that guy is a fantastic, um, Shane McRae, and uh, I I had no idea, I had never really thought about it before. Yeah, yeah and but then I look back, and he's like, he's totally right. <laughs> there it is, all over the place. That's great.
0: Let's talk about the title of the book real quick, uh uh-huh. "Consciousness," which I absolutely love. I think it's like it's the central conundrum of uh, being a human being in many ways (laughs) that these two things are like constantly confusing us. Um, uh, How did you arrive at that title?
1: Um, So there's a lot of different ways. I think that um, it, that it became important to me. Um, I, I've felt for a long time that the individual choices you make as an artist and as a poet uh, have ethical dimensions Um, So that even the choice of, you know, which margin you're using um, and where you break your lines and the the kinds of language you're using, whether you choose to write in standard grammatical formulations or not. um, And any other number, I mean, the subjects of your right, all those things to me uh, have to have ethical dimensions to them. And um, and then as a lawyer, one of the things that came out of doing work that involves race um, is how much perception and uh, and the thought process all of those things also have ethical dimensions that you know one of the I think what a lot of people would say the kind of most prominent form of racism today is uh, something that a lot of people call implicit bias so I don't like a person would say, I, I am not a I'm not a prejudiced person. I'm not a racist person. Yet that person still has negative associations um, that arise when they're confronted with people of other races. Right. Um, and so uh, and that that influences their decision making and their, the ways they address other people and a million other things. And that will, you know, you can start to see kind of the the stain of it over time as more and more decisions are made. Um so uh, to me the in the and it's very similar to how all those individual choices as an artist have this ethical dimension um, the form of your perceptions uh, how you are um, really the shape of your consciousness has this ethical dimension to me as well um, as one of the things I try to... That I'm interested in as a poet, I think, is just saying directly, <laughs> like, uh, and I like that about this title is just sort of speaking directly, like, this is it. Uh, yeah, it, None not, of it. <laughs> this isn't a metaphor for what I was thinking about. This is the thing I was thinking about.
0: Precisely. Uh, yeah.
1: And I also like that it's this like sort of. I had the idea that it would sound like a self-help book, um, <laughs> and because you know. That's a, like you know, as a poet, I can't say that like I'm like somehow above that tendency. Right. Um. And uh. And I had like I thought like oh, that'd be kind of fascinating. And then I googled it, um, just because I was like, I wonder if anyone else has used this formulation before. Yeah. You know, I'm not a student of philosophy, but uh, Hegel apparently has a whole thing, or is it Kant? Maybe it's Kant.
0: This yeah. Is how
1: Much of a student I'm not, Um, but there's this idea that you know ethical consciousness is the you know developing of consciousness of the group and what the community's needs are and and all of that is like a story of the progression of um, you know human consciousness. Precisely, definitely. Um, We have time for uh,
0: one more poem, and I I know I had kind of kind of nudged you towards one particular poem, but I will give you free reign in your book to read. To read any poem you would like, regardless of length or anything. Anything you, uh, you want to share with us?
1: Um, I mean, I'll read anything. Do you want to read the long one? Is that crazy? Is that, that's going to take too long.
0: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know what? Let's just kind of break conventional like wisdom about doing audio interviews and
1: read the damn thing. <laughs> All right, great. Let's do it. Let's do muted flags. Muted flags. Time is filled with constant sound that occasionally impresses itself upon a clutter of seconds, but even then it has nothing on how the mind is embossed with arrangements of light. The sky fills and empties, the rug splashes with delight, and the person who knew without having to ask that there are any number of ways to fail your family glided up the steps of the courthouse so gracefully you almost thought it was worth it. But hadn't everything happened already? Hadn't you already gone back home, dripping from sleep and the self that possessed you anew? Your mouth plopped open, your tongue fell from palate to floor. You pulled your eyelids apart, laid a hand over each cheek and stretched back the sides of your face and waited. It might have been minutes, days, time, whatever it was, refused to concress into familiar outlines but instead cascaded around you in a blossoming orange oval. I was incredibly pretty with my dark green blouse and red scarf, my black eyes set against the cool blush of sudden attention. No one would believe what could happen in my mind. You went from one place to another, but I remained perfectly still. I developed a new kind of movement. With my body frozen, my mind subtly rearranged salient phenomena within the horizon of my perceptions. I fill the hours with everything, ubiquitous reflection, avoidable shadow, and listen to pink music in my stomach. Oh, the despotic possible. Sometimes It sometimes takes me a day to pry my hands out of my hair, and in all that time, I focus on the line that to me represents what is fundamentally acceptable. I wave up and down across it, like the temperature, across the thermostat. I stand watch before or exact correlations between objects in the space and shapes shapes that make tenable settings in my eyes but that seem always just out of sync not the driveway not the afternoon but me the friday grass and you I knew you made a decision about something that day. You crawled through the air shaft and tore the afternoon limb from limb. So I gathered my knitting, stepped decisively through blackest night, and clutched the doorknob which came apart in my hand. Oh no! At that moment, I saw through a suddenly clarifying, clarifying blur, much of what I now understand to be myself. I had failed. Couldn't I have done more to comb through the forms that later would harvest my strange moods into a stranger way of looking through the bones in my face at the surrounding earth? Or would it all just amount, even at its most meticulous pagination, to an endless cinderblock wall? You, on the other hand, with your welling esteem, seem more like a doorway. Well, hello there. Yes, now would be a perfect time to gender identify. I'm a beautiful mongoose. Could you switch on the light? Can you see into my face through the tripling of the implied and the apparent? It's a wonder, isn't it, that you ever finish talking? For you, nothing can exist on its own, but instead has to be understood as an interval between stars and the pale grass at the bottom of the pond stocked well past feasible with the vagaries of your ambition and your past. It's like a chronic disease that occasionally flares up and consumes you. I feel as though I've only known you through a veil of style and decades as a projection of hapless striving come to its predictably laughable culmination, your clean legs arched on a low glass table in an empty library, your head listing just slightly to starboard, as you lean forward in your chair and stare with autistic concentration at a blank white wall, a picture of static intensity. Nothing wanted you to learn its casual sky, to come down from the perfect two-inch blue band encircling you, A long, slow hill masked off the pre-horizon, damp with the prideful tears of a wind farm, under dozens of divot-shaped clouds pressed flat against the elevation dew-point matrix like tufts of dough on glass. If only you had aspired to notable absence. If you had only been willing to wait for the paint to dry on the walls of your influence before declaring, with typically epigraphic intensity, all water the stars, in yourself a flavor of bombastic mysticism whose great irony weaves through its claim to no irony at all. It was raining in the French Quarter, and the family walked up Decatur Street in matching yellow ponchos in a wet gust. The mother's poncho blew up off her body and waved from her neck into the air, her arms wheeling, her hands flopping around, but finding no purchase. The father and kids came to her rescue batting down the plastic and and finally unearthing the mother's face, broken into wide laughter. I like to have the room composed this way, not because I ever actually sit and appreciate how the desk, the chair, and the bookshelves balance against their adjoining walls and each other, that it is so geometrically satisfying, but because, in the minutes after I've moved the furniture to wherever it is, the calm and literal present appears negotiably within reach he draws a parallel between the destruction of landscapes and the deaths of specific human beings, not to bluntly philosophize the return to dust of all once dust, but instead, because certain agents of destruction, if they even have agency, are fully agnostic about their effects, that human life has been plowed under time and again as if it were a train station fallen into disrepair. For the video, I I hired five let's say, affordable actors, and gave them an incredibly rudimentary script of 15 short, unconnected statements which I asked them to say one after another directly into the camera in a specific emotional register, then to go through the statements again in a slightly different register, and then again and again until each actor had gone through the statements 15 different ways. What they came up with was insane. Too much, really. So I decided to edit the video by taking out any recognizable speech and cramming everything else together. The result was a jumpy collage of mouth noise and unconsummated facial expressions, which was incredibly tedious to edit, as I'm sure you can imagine, because it was often unclear exactly where each cut should begin and end, how to pin down the point where a sound becomes a word rather than something less recognizable, like how some animals or insects are indistinguishable from their habitats until there's a small movement or a shift in the light, and the whole creature appears suddenly so obvious, One day, after a marathon editing session, I left the studio alone at 2 a.m. and decided to walk home. My eyes were barely functioning, and it seemed like every sound was a human voice, far away or close up, speaking to me. I could hardly trust my senses, and so it took me some time to comprehend what was happening. When a man emerged from the shadows between two buildings and, practically in a whisper, demanded my money, I must have looked at him so strangely, not as he might have expected, shocked, or frightened, but as if I'd just walked out of a dark theater into the daylight, and he were soliciting strangers for bit parts in the inevitable apocalypse. The man was patient with me as I worked through the algorithm of this new relationship. It was several seconds more before I noticed the knife he held casually in his right hand. I reached for my wallet, remembering as I did that all I had was a twenty- And it was supposed to last me three more days until my next check came in. I hate to think what it says about me, but it was not until I realized this that I began to panic. I took out my wallet and opened it for the man to see. And I said, I have $20. Can I split it with you? To my great surprise and relief, he said, all right. I said, the thing is, I have to get change. There's There's a bar two blocks up. Is it okay if we go there? The man shrugged his shoulders, and we started off. When we got to the bar, he waited outside, resigned, it seemed, to the possibility that once inside, I would never return. But instead, I asked Nick, the bartender, for change, came back out, and handed the man a $10 bill. He grabbed it, turned, and ran, and I walked home, senses and mind hopelessly scrambled. I can't say I really slept that night. I may have, but at most it was a twilight sleep, hovering in the threshold not fully committed to either room. I imagined each of the actors from my video asking me a question that appears in a footnote in the Thomas Nagel essay, Death. <coughs> Abraham Lincoln was taller than Louis XIV. But when? As the night wore on and I leaned further through the threshold into sleep, the vision became more elaborate. I was surrounded by a choir of hundreds, all of them speaking the question in unison with exactly the same inflections, inflections that cycled through a full range of emotions, calm sobriety, anger, resignation, ecstasy, and so on, never hitting any particular emotional register more than once the entire night. The actors remained still as I walked among them, approaching each person closely enough to hear how his or her voice was both enmeshed with and distinct from the whole. And then I moved back to the exact center of the ring they had formed, their sound intensifying into a physical pressure on all sides of my body, a pressure that modulated through the short statement they repeated, and often growing so strong as they reached, but when, that I thought I would be lifted off the ground. Up close, each actor's voice had sounded thin and unremarkable, but together they were unexpectedly moving. At some point I rolled over and noticed light behind the curtains which I opened to see wisps of color in the sky that was still so dim I couldn't tell if the day was cloudless or overcast. I asked out loud the question the actors had been reciting all night. Abraham Lincoln was taller than Louis XIV, but when? And as I did, it occurred to me that there was some chance, perhaps a very good chance, that other people in the world would be speaking the exact words I spoke at exactly the same time, not all the words, of course. But perhaps nine different people were each speaking one of the words as I spoke just that word, the ten of us forming an incidental choir heard only by God. As the morning grew into itself, cloudless it turned out, and this line of thought developed, it seemed likely that perhaps several people would be speaking the more common words at one time, and that if the words were broken down into their phonemes, the choir would be both multilingual and quite international. I imagined a delusional future where all human speech would be recorded for the benefit of an idiosyncratic dictator commanding an army of editors, whose Sisyphean task would be to edit each day's recordings down to the flickering instances of synchronization within the populace, the moments when the people truly spoke as one, to what end only the future could tell. It struck me that to be such a dictator, on the smallest scale, may well be within reach. For oneself, for instance, with the right technology, one could track systematically the granular conceits of one's being, the tendency to angle one's head in a certain way, certain patterns of conversational pauses, as yet unnoticed phrasal ticks, and even the life within, not only tidal cycles of mood and awareness, but also the recurrence of thin slices of mentation or brief emotional possibilities and perhaps indexed metabolic shifts of neurotransmitters and other molecular effluvia of the mind, to track as many observable points as possible on a spreadsheet, presumably several feet wide, to make observations thousands of times a day for months on end, <clears throat> and then to sort this NEPTIC data set any number of ways. I got, very, I got very excited about the possibilities for a few hours. I came up with what I thought was a pretty good title, was it what is it like to be Thomas Nagel I even began sketching out the software and equipment needed for what felt like an eminently marketable conceptual project but then I suddenly lost steam as in so many conceptual pieces it occurred to me that all the meaning I actually cared about would be conveyed by the description of the project leaving the actual execution to be somewhat pointless and probably quite boring It might even be regarded as a desperate ploy for an aura of authenticity, an aura in tension with some of the project's more troubling undercurrents. I considered simply faking the results. It's not as if anyone checks your math in these things. But but a fabricated aura of authenticity seemed more desperate, not less. (laughs) Moreover, the constant surveillance the project entailed felt like a reaction, not only to the previous night's mugging, but also to your current, your recently successful run for Congress. Or, more precisely, your sudden disappearance as a recognizable self during the campaign. I suppose I never have come to grips with the strange forces that shifted the components of your personality and extracted many of them altogether, or perhaps submerged them, as if to protect them from the turbulence above, the violent and widening ripples of your prominence. These small heuristics of personality, exactly the kinds of features that my abandoned conceptual project would have scrupulously documented in myself, thereby reassuring me that I still had them, that I had not myself disappeared, seemed like a particularly tragic victim of your ambition. Bits of conduct that you had repeated dozens of times a day for as long as I would known you began to surface only sporadically, replaced by movements and rhetorical trajectories that seemed to have no origin or destination at all. It was as if you never again expected to slip into the massive diagram of everyone's indifference. <clears throat> the canned inflections dangling from the strikingly inanimate gap of your mouth followed the machine cut turns of the delicate puzzle pieces you made of every conversation. You wanted the light to wash over you from the awe of your listeners, stoked by your unctuous charisma. The press releases were a second skin. Most tragic of all is that it didn't seem to be a pose. Your mind appeared to be genuinely empty. Still, even you had to taste your mouth to feel the realignment of facial muscles as you came through curtain after curtain. Even you had to wonder when the cameras became so inescapable. In one photograph, the awning behind you flops around like an electorate in wind freshly authorized by the season. You're just turning your face into it the wrinkles around your eyes tightening into deep pencil strokes, the roving spotlights locking onto your position. You had buttoned your suit jacket and tugged each cuff in turn, and your haircut set your face like a table in a catalog. You wanted to be noticed but not scrutinized, to convey integrity so subtly yet so completely that no one would imagine exploring further or even asking a single question, which you knew was all it would take like an eccentric copyright that automatically expires upon inspection. In retrospect, I suppose I hoped you would actually step deeper into the funnel of pure ubiquity as it mushroomed out into the entirety of your potential, frothing with information, the feeling of breath leaving your lips, your pores contracting, the foreground and the background digitizing into dense filigree each keystroke of awareness arriving as a novel. I wanted to hear you give a speech like this. Friends to whom I will always be younger, less sure, somewhat confused, but still promising, I speak to you today to reassure you. I'm a haze and metric daytime, living in the elbow of a comma. Nonetheless, my world is ordered by levels of intensity. A translucent drape softens the sky. Cross-hatched exchanges insinuate from the television, My fingers brush over flaked paint on wrought iron fixtures, a tang of stomach acid, the smell of burning dust as a lamp comes on after months of darkness. It is endless. At a certain level of abstraction, it can all be imagined as a collage of shadows and sunlight But you and I know better. All we have seen is 15 feet of road, and yet, here we are, the Treaty of Versailles. As you wait for your words to sink in, I imagine them tumbling back over you, enclosing you in the fact that you said them, just then to no one, <clears throat> or really, to no one else. A crisscross of darkness extends from each of your senses, projecting a cone of absence into the outline of a black sky, an emblem of its permutations in a column of stars before night is lost in prodigal dawn.
0: Paul Killebrew, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you.